everyone just expressing that everything here that I say is my opinion and I am not a lawyer. So take everything here with a grain of salt. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about open source sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Why am I getting these cease and desist letters in my email inbox? Very excited to talk to you today. I am Richard Latour, your host, solo host today, but that's okay. I hope all of my co-hosts are having lovely Fridays today. I'm joined today by a guest from London, by Mohammed Shah. Mohammed, how are you doing? I'm okay, Richard. How are you? I'm doing great. So Mohammed has a really interesting story to talk to us today about, but we're going to be talking about maintaining open source and undue pressure against open source maintainers from various sources today. So Mohammed, I know that you are a open source developer. Can you tell me a bit more context about what kind of open source you've been working on? Yeah, so I'm a full stack developer. A few years ago, I was part of a program called Antler. It's like a copycat of YC here in Europe and the UK. I was invited to help a project to reduce the risk of pre-diabetes in Black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities because we're at high risk. So the idea was when I came in, basically to use CBT and calorie tracking to get people to slowly reduce their risk, but just from their diet, because that's a big factor. The idea was basically people don't download apps today. If hardware is too hard, let's meet people where they are. And unlike in America and China, WhatsApp is king basically everywhere. So why don't we make a WhatsApp chatbot that allows people to track their calories with a bit of human assistance in the middle and some advice as well. So essentially the MVP was a WhatsApp account where you can chat, you can share your picture of your food. It would try to use some existing models to kind of identify that food. If it failed out that, it would, you would have to guess. And then it would just basically track your calories throughout the day. In order to do that, in order to build a MVP, I tried to use the official means. It didn't really work. Then I forked a project. So that's my entry into open source. We just fixed the decryption algorithm and I put it back on NPM. It was a note package. Fast forward, that didn't get enough funding. So that project died, COVID happened, but a lot more people kept on submitting issues and I have a bit of OCD with issues. I always want to get to issue zero. So I would just service those issues. And eventually over COVID, it, it kind of grew and grew up to May in 23 now. And that's when we received our cease and desist from Meta. Can you tell me a bit about what this project exactly does. Is it a clone of WhatsApp? What is it? So it essentially, it's a tool. It's a CLI tool that allows you to scan a QR code and then instantly turn your own WhatsApp account into an API. That's the gist of it. There are other projects which do something similar using different means. So my project would use a puppeteer and web automation to achieve that. Other projects reverse engineer the existing socket APIs. So yeah, there's quite a lot of projects that do that. And it's just a way for you to interact with your own WhatsApp account. So it's for your own WhatsApp account. It's not interacting with other people's WhatsApp accounts. It's just a bot that only works for you. Well, some developers build tools for their own use cases. It depends. You can use it for your own, but basically there's no way that you can use it without pre-authorization. So as QR code has to be scanned by the WhatsApp account holder which then allows the account to be automated or 
interacted with in a programmatic way. Does this violate any of WhatsApp's terms of service? Well, technically, everybody's violating WhatsApp's terms of service. If you actually read that thing, but I didn't really read it. I don't even remember accepting it. I actually made my WhatsApp account back when I had my N900 on the Memo platform. But yeah, their terms of service are becoming more and more egregious by the day. Technically, as a user, you're prohibited from helping directly or indirectly anybody from accessing WhatsApp services through automated or other means. That includes basically everybody. If you're helping your grandma access WhatsApp, you're in violation. And the fact that it includes indirectly there means that even the Node team are in violation, the Puppeteer team, the Chrome team, and the Apple team are all in violation technically of their terms of service. Really quickly, I am not a lawyer and I don't know a lot about technical things. Are you a lawyer? Not at all. No way. Okay. <laughs> Just making sure we get that clear from the beginning. So. It looks like it's possibly in violation of WhatsApp terms of service. Of course, terms of services are way too long. As we all know, no one reads all the terms of services and it's very difficult to figure things out. But it sounds to me like what you had done was build a tool that could be used by people to access WhatsApp in a certain way for a helpful cause. And this may be in violation if they decide to use it that way. But putting it on NPM with a license wasn't in violation of anything, correct? Not specifically, no. Uh, at the end of the day, me personally, after my initial project kind of didn't go anywhere, I just maintained the tool for other people to use. So I never really had cool. my own box that I made or whatever. But yeah, you're right. People used it for really good reasons. There was a education charity in the UK that used it to help 70,000 people, teachers in Malawi to continue teaching through during COVID. A Swiss team used it for COVID uh, track and trace. People in South America used it to protect Uber drivers from being kidnapped and murdered. There's so many really good projects out there. And unfortunately, with WhatsApp's restrictive APIs, these projects would not be otherwise possible. And to be honest, if their APIs were open and free, then this project would not need to exist. So can you tell me what license did you use to put this code up? So a lot of the projects in this space use MIT and GPL. For me, I knew that there's no commercial outlook for this project. So I actually used the Hippocratic and the Do Not Harm licenses. I, I mashed them up to make a license where we make no commercial claims over the project, the organization or the maintainers, but we do actually make claims on the use of the tool. And that unfortunately WhatsApp is used just in general for a lot of nefarious purposes. And I didn't want any of my work to contribute to that. So it's not allowed to be used for spam, but also not allowed to be used for sex trafficking, weapons dealing, or there's a long list of things that it's not allowed to be used for. But everybody else, yeah, in the space use GPO. I just want to point out that your Hippocratic slash do not harm license also has the MIT disclaimer of the software provided as is without warranty of any kind, express or implied. And the author and copyright holders are not liable for any claim damages or other liability, whether in action or contract, or otherwise arising from out of connection with the software or the use of other dealings in the software. So the very much fun, not my deal if you use this. It is someone else's deal. I'm not liable for anything you do with this software. For me, the reason why I wanted to talk to you today is because you started receiving cease and desist letters. Can you tell me about that process? So yeah, after three or four years of a lot of these projects kind of chugging along, unfortunately, in the beginning, in mid-April, one of the biggest projects in the Node WhatsApp space received a cease and desist. He's a 
I don't want to mention his name if he doesn't want to be mentioned, but basically he started his project out of a university project in India. In he's from Delhi. And unfortunately, it spooked that guy so much that he completely went dark. And then in mid-May, I came off a flight Friday night. I was sent to cease and desist. I kind of froze, to be honest. I couldn't move. It was extremely distressing. In the cease and desist, it says I have 48 hours to respond. And it's Friday night. So I was emailing EFF. I was emailing all these firms. Some replied, some didn't. Most didn't reply in time. So by that Sunday night, I also had to concede. At the end of the day, the calculation is that I don't have, at the time, $600 billion to fight these people. So there's nothing really that I can do to protect myself or my maintainership of this project. So I had to kind of step down. Unfortunately, it didn't stop there. The Indian developers project, which was called Bailey's, it was forked by their own community members. And that's what kept it alive for that month between me and him. Unfortunately, a week and a bit after myself, one of those maintainers, who is a really young guy in a third world country at the moment, he received it for a fork, which was really, really unfortunate in the middle of his exams. So yeah, at the time we weren't aware of any significant event that would trigger this, but it seems to have been triggered by their own commencement of their own official WhatsApp SDK. So just to point out, I may not have the legal background to effectively facilitate this conversation, but I wanted to have it because yeah. I wanted to say that this is really stressful for a maintainer to receive a cease and desist for an open source project that involves the program put out by a large multinational company. In this case, it's Meta and it's WhatsApp. I have WhatsApp on my phone. It works great for me. It's hard to develop things in public using public APIs and then to be told you have to stop what you're doing immediately. It's also very difficult to see that when at the same time that company can say release SDKs publicly and it seems like they may coincide with cease and desist letters. Now, our courts work in a fashion that cease and desist letters are totally legal instruments to use. You can send them on behalf of your company saying this may be an infringement. What's difficult is that there's no protection for maintainers who don't have the resources to respond effectively to those letters. And in those cases, it's kind of like getting hit by a patent troll. And the thing to do is, is to freeze and be like, what do I do in this instance? And how do I deal with this problem? And that's kind of where I want to leave the conversation for the most part. I don't want to go into the specifics of this lawyer said this, this lawyer said that. Because again, I do not have the skills to legally facilitate a conversation in public, which a podcast is. But I do want to ask, how have you dealt with the project in the time since then? And how have you personally viewed open source? To be honest, I just wanted to tell somebody about it. Even if this never goes out, as long as you guys are aware that this is happening, that's like my job done was worth my time. In terms of what I've been doing with the project since, like I had to completely stop maintaining it and it's under a GitHub organization. I could actually offload it to somebody. People have asked me to take over, but I can't in good conscience allow this to continue if there is more risk, not just on myself, but on other people. I can't give somebody potentially poison pill. So unfortunately, the project has been stopped in terms of feature requests, in terms of community engagement. So are there any 
ideas you've had or discussions you've had with people about potential ways forward as a maintainer community, not necessarily to fight season desist letters, but to better actually equip ourselves to deal with legal action on behalf of our repositories. I know there are things like the Software Freedom Conservancy that are out there right now defending the rights of developers using the GPL that's then violated. That's a very slow process. That's super awesome. But I was curious, have any other ideas percolated up that you've had an ear to? I've been thinking that it would be really useful to have some sort of open source developer union or open source worker union to deal with these really strange edge cases where it only affects a few people, but actually has big implications actually if it continues. So these things can be nipped in the bud the first time they happen and not the thousandth time they happen. I think something like that where people contribute and it's set up worldwide at the end of the day, open sources worldwide, even though the people with resources who do it are maybe primarily in the West, open sources worldwide. At the end of the day, open source is going to become a bigger and bigger industry as time goes on. It's just going to grow. So there needs to be protections. I mean, we all talk about, we all kind of like dream about uh, sustainable open source where people can just be open source devs full time. Donations sometimes work, sometimes they don't. But at the end of the day, like if people are on that journey and they get swatted down mid-journey, then it's not going to be sustainable. If you look at strike movements in the UK with the train drivers, the doctors, the nurses, in America with the writers and the actors, they all have that collective power, which we don't, unfortunately. So I have another possibly awkward question, which I feel like I have to ask. Open source doesn't have to deal with SDKs or APIs for corporate projects. There's a ton of open source projects that aren't involved with that at all. For instance, you could have contributed to like the GNU kernel or so forth. And I'm curious, has that factored into your decision to sort of maybe hold off an open source for a bit? Have you ever thought and like, oh, I wish I was a Linux kernel developer instead of this stuff? Yeah, I do actually wish that like I didn't put myself in this type of risk before. I didn't know about the risk, you guys. I didn't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, but the thing is that from the story of the inception of this project and whatever, it wasn't out of any interest in WhatsApp. It just happened to happen. The project happened. I needed to create that MVP. I needed to fix the decryption and then COVID happened. And then I, I needed something to do. So I think a lot of people organically end up in open source. And yeah, I think it's as valid as working in the kernel because at the end of the day, it, it actually was used by a lot of people. If nobody used it, then yeah, it would be, I don't know, questionable spending time on it. But I think if other people find use in it, I think it's a valid thing to work on, I feel like. I love that. I think that's great. I realized I asked that in the middle of the union discussion. I really like the idea of a developer union. And I really like the idea of that being a way to represent and support developers who deal with problems that they hadn't foreseen, which may or may not be valid. Again, season desist letters are valid tools for companies to use under our current system. So what they did makes sense from my perspective, knowing what I know. It just really sucks for you to have to shutter a project while you deal with it. Regarding your point before about we not having to work on projects that use APIs or try to extract APIs or try to give people access to existing services, there's a term in EU Digital Markets Act law called gatekeeper. In the UK, they're going to call it strategic market significance firms. These companies are monopolies. WhatsApp specifically goes and colludes with international, with telecommunication company worldwide to make sure that they 
cement their market dominance in that space. And if they want to do that, then if they want to be more important than infrastructure, then they should be accessible like infrastructure. That's my opinion of it. In my opinion of the Web 2.0 promise, what was one of the main promises? APIs. Did you notice by the day, our API access is decreasing, becoming more restricted. And that's not conducive to our vision of the future. You know, like imagine if Iron Man said, okay, tell Captain America that I'm on my way. And then Jarvis instead responds, oh, based on the terms and conditions, I'm sorry, I'm not able to send that message. Like, no, the future is built on interoperability. All these AIs and all these things that maybe people have issues with or whatever, how can they interact with the existing services that we actually use today with interoperability through APIs? And in my opinion, if they don't want to provide those at a reasonable way, then people should have the right to actually use these services. That's my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that Twitter offering API licenses for over half a million dollars doesn't make a ton of sense or API access, I should say, especially as all that stuff was free before and as it's in the public interest. I mean, if the president of the White House uses Twitter, then it should be owned by the people collectively. What's difficult is where this breaks down along international lines and where this interfaces with we need to keep our rights as a company and some IP so that we can continue to function providing the services necessary versus having an ecosystem of open source developers who need those APIs to function to be able to do stuff, which is where you're caught in the middle. So it's a very tough problem and I don't see a solution to it at the moment. So Mohammed. I think I want to end there because I'm not sure how much further we can go at this exact moment, but I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this work. I'm curious where you're going to go next. Have you thought about that, about what you want to work on in the future? Well, one thing I've been working on in the last few days is something which is a bit less code work and a bit more relating to climate. I feel like in the tech industry has really done a great job in holding corporations to account when it comes to our security online with the, the CVE system. And I've uh, set up a, a website, cve.earth, which is just a GitHub organization, which I invite people to kind of join if they're interested. And it's basically CVEs to the CVE system adapted for climate, where people can come together and kind of archive and track corporate environmental destruction in a way which is useful for researchers and for journalists and everybody to keep track of. So that's what I've been working on the last few days. And in the future, maybe I'll do something else. CVE.Earth. That sounds really cool. Good luck with that. I really like that initiative and that idea. Where can people reach out to you in the future if they want to? You can uh, tweet at me at Smasha, S-M-A-S-H-A-H. And if anybody wants to talk about the situation or our rights as coders and what foundation we need to kind of cement in to have this utopian vision of our technological future, I'm more than happy to talk about that. I can talk about that for days. <laughs> as can I. Love that. That's super cool. Mohammed, thank you so much for coming on. Don't leave yet. At the end of every single Sustained Podcast, we have a section called Spotlight. Spotlight is for highlighting projects, people, books that we love, that we feel need a little bit more light shed on them. Traditionally, the host goes first. So hello, this is Richard with my spotlight today. Today, I want to spotlight Tom Spot Calloway. Spot 
is an awesome developer. We've had him on the podcast before, and I was having a conversation at Fossey last week where someone pointed out the spot is actually really tall, but you don't notice it because they lean back when they talk to you. Some tall people do not lean back and you always notice that they're very tall and spots just amazing at seeming small. And I really love that. There are other people like this too. Ben Jam is really good at this, my co-host. But I just want to give a shout out to the realization that just because you're tall doesn't mean you have to be intimidating. And tall people always know that they're tall. But it was really good to realize, oh, yeah, that person is without ever having thought about it before. So Spot, you're amazing. Keep it up. Mohammed, what's your spotlight today? So I've got two new books. But here is one, which is uh, the Rick Rubin book, The Creative Act, A Way of Being. So Rick Rubin, obviously, everybody knows that is a famous producer. And then also The Silent Coup by Matt Kennard and Claire Provost. It's a good book about how corporations overthrow democracies. Amazing. I have that Rick Rubin book somewhere in my giant stack of books that I never get through. So yeah, that's cool. Mohammed, thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any thoughts on it, please send them our way. You can do so in many different ways. You can email podcast at sustainoss.org. That'll go to all the hosts, including me. Please send all your complaints to that line. You can also use social medias. We're on Twitter and Discourse and Mastodon and all the other things. You can go to podcast.sustainoss.org to find the show notes for this podcast. And if you want to donate, go to open collective slash sustainoss. We would love to have more funds to keep this sort of project going. Also, like this podcast wherever you have downloaded it. That would be super, super cool. And talk about it with your friends and tell them to listen to Sustain. And also, if you have any guests that you really want to have on, again, email podcast at Mohammed, thank you so much for coming on. 